This morning, I'll be reading from Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, who you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out to make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now therefore that the Lord your God, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been going through, I think we're on our ninth week through Deuteronomy, which is fitting since we're in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 9. Is my thing on? Uh, And we turn to Deuteronomy. You might be wondering, that's the fifth book of the Old Testament way back there in your Bibles. We turn to Deuteronomy and uh, we turn to the scripture each and every week because we believe that man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God from Genesis to Revelation. So we turn to Deuteronomy this morning, and, and I wonder as we come to Deuteronomy, if you think you would be good at, at pre-game speeches, or maybe at pre-tests, or, or pre-performance you know, like performance speeches. Some of you would probably be really good. I'm not sure that I would be. Right here in, in the book of Deuteronomy is, is, is in a sense, it's, it's, it's a pre-game speech. I hear you, Moses is here preaching the sermon, getting the, the people, Israel, ready to move into the promised land. And he takes some interesting tactics, doesn't he? Uh, some of you, if you were to do pregame speeches, you could do uh, chapter 9's pregame speech pretty well. Like, let's, let's, let's take them low before we kind of pump them up. Maybe some of you wouldn't be so good at that. God is equipping his people to enter into the promised land, and he does a couple different things in this kind of this pregame speech before they go in. He, he lifts them up. And he takes them low. Both of them are meant to prepare them rightly for the promised land and for what he would have them do in the promised land. There's, there's warning in Deuteronomy right alongside constantly affirmation and confidence. They, they go together side by side. In the last few chapters, chapter 7, you're my treasured possession. You're my beloved people. And I love you not because you're awesome, but because I love you. In chapter 8, it, Know that that you were out in the wilderness, but I was there, and I gave you all that you needed. You could be sustained, and you could depend upon me, and I was faithful there. I was faithful before that. You can always trust me. I mean, he is lifting them up. In chapter 9, 
We go back down a little bit lower. It says, now that you've seen, like the manna has showed you at every stage, that I'm dependable and trustworthy, now that you see at every turn that you're my treasured possession, that I'm going to sustain you and keep you and take care of you, now you need to see at every turn that I'm merciful because you're not righteous. And this should give you confidence in who I am and in me, but not pride. And God's dispossession of the nations in front of them was to continue to point to God's greatness, His faithfulness, His mercy, His doing not theirs. And so Moses begins with these familiar words in chapter 9. Hear, hear, O Israel. You are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than you. This is a place, if you recall, of past failure. They've been on the brink of the promised land before. They've heard a pregame speech before. And here they are again, a place of past fear where they looked in and said, we can't do this. They're too big, they're too mighty, they're too great. They've been here before and they've failed. But Moses speaks with certainty. You're going to go over and you're going to cross over the Jordan and you're going to dispossess the nations in front of you. These are nations that are, verse 1, greater and mightier than you. The cities are great. They're fortified up to the heavens. And there's a people in them that are great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Is that supposed to give them confidence? The nations that you're going in to dispossess are greater than you. Thanks for the pep talk. They're mightier than you. Great. Doing good. Keep pumping us up. They're, they're cities. They're fortified up to heaven. You don't have a city. You're living in tents. You're moving around in the wilderness. Oh, and also, none of your people have any sort of great renown as warriors. They do. Not only do you know that and, and tremble at that, who they are, but the world, they, they, there's this rumor has gone out. They have this, this reputation. These warriors are unbeatable. They're giants. And so how in the world are we to go over and cross over and dispossess them? And how does Moses speak with certainty? Did the manna that God fed them with along the way bulk them up? Did their clothing that God sustained, that, that, that endured throughout their wilderness temptations, did their clothing kind of somehow turn into armor? Or maybe during their time in the wilderness, the, the nations were weakened, like they had stones that were fortifying their cities, but they were kind of crumbling at the foundation. No, none of that. Verse 3 tells us, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. And he will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. It's the Lord who goes before them as a consuming fire. This consuming fire is again a picture of, of both power and judgment. It's a picture that Israel should know well. Do you remember Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16? Let's look there briefly. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah raises up and rebels against Moses and the leadership that God had put in place. And listen to what happens in chap Numbers chapter 16, verse 31. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. This is the people who had rebelled with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. 
So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 35, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. God was clearly distinguishing, here's who I've appointed as leadership, and you've rebelled against that. And when you rebel against God, some things happen. Sometimes the earth opens up and swallows them whole. Sometimes fire comes out and consumes them. If that weren't a vivid enough illustration of God as this consuming fire, you remember chapter 5 in Deuteronomy where they said, as they're hearing God speak on the mountain, they said, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire that has descended on the mountain will consume us. If we hear his voice of the Lord anymore, we shall die. So when he says that the Lord is going before you as a consuming fire, to these people hearing that, they, they would have known the, the power of that. They, they heard this consuming fire speak, and they heard his voice, and they said, we don't want to hear him anymore because we think we might die if we do. And that same consuming fire is the consuming fire that goes before them but not against them. He's going to destroy, verse 3, the nations before you, subdue them before you, and you're going to drive them out. So they need not worry about the might of the nations or their fortified cities or their, their size or the strength of their warriors. What they need to know is the one who goes before them. And after stating the strength and renown of the nations, Moses' first instructions to them is to know who goes before? And I think that it's instructive that Moses has spent little to no time on strategy. Briefly even sizes up the nations, which is substantial even in brief. But repeatedly comes back and brings them back to the Lord. Who he is. What he's done. What he's promised to do. I can't help but wonder how different that is from our own approach. Uh, we said this in our home group last week. Somebody mentioned this quote, but Luther said, I have so much to do that I have to spend the first three hours in prayer this morning. It was as if like everything is great and mighty out there, but God's first. Then those things. Perhaps before turning to the news or to social media or to anything that we can find and have access to in our pockets, on our phones, or another face or another voice, perhaps we can turn first to the Lord, as that would be the most important part of our entire lives. This is how God's people should approach, not just some sort of major conquest that's in front of them, full of fortified cities and great armies. This is how God's people should approach what's in front of them all the time, daily what's in front of them. Jesus instructed his disciples in this way. He taught them how to pray. And he didn't say, first pray for daily bread. That was part of it. It's good prayer. Give me today what I need to, to, to go throughout this day. What does he do first? He, he lifts their eyes upward. They, they are to say, our Father in heaven. They're, they're looking up, in a sense, in that way. And what's the first petition that he gives them? What he tells them, this is how you should pray. It's not first, give me what I need today, although that will come. It's first, hallowed be your name. The first petition, I think, in priority ought to be, not just in order, but in priority ought to be, God, let your name be hallowed today. It's God first. 
turning to God first. Then later in that Sermon on the Mount where he told them and taught them how to pray, he tells them like, we know that you're hungry and you're going you're gonna to need food and God, God knows you're going to need clothing, but what do you to seek first? Not food or clothing or all those things. God knows you need those. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all those things will, will kind of fall into place rightly. Our primary pursuit, that the most important thing to know for every single one of us is to not know just what's in front, but who goes before us. Who is this God? And we should see everything through the view of who God is, what He's done, what He's promised to do. Our perspective of all things as those who are His people needs to be shaped primarily by Him. And so if we were to look at the promised land as an Israelite, we should look through that lens. Our God goes forth as a consuming fire. That's the major detail before we move forward. Not what they are, who our God is. It can be wise to strategize. Right? It can be wise to prepare for your day, to think about what's got to be done, how it's got to be done. But our primary focus should be the Lord, whose we are. Knowing God is the primary thing we're to be about before we're about any other thing, we need to be about knowing God. This is sum and substance of our lives. And so as preparation for the dispossession of the nations in the promised land, Moses directs them not to strategy, not to a detailed description to size up the enemy and the nations in front of them. He directs them to know the Lord who goes before them as this consuming fire. But he's also going to direct them to know why he goes before them, why he's going to destroy the nations. Look in verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God is going to use Israel, this less numerous, less mighty, unimpressive people, to destroy the seven nations that currently have possession of the promised land, that are, are bigger and more fortified and have great warriors in front of them. And God does not hide this reality. God is going to destroy them. He's going to use them, but it is God who's doing this. He's not hiding this, and God is not shrinking back whatsoever from responsibility. It's the Lord who's destroying. He's going before them. He's the consuming fire. So it doesn't seem as if he's embarrassed by this at all. It's clear that it's God who's doing the work. And quite frankly, because we know that this Lord is God, he owes no explanation to anybody for any of this. As Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. He owes no explanation. But he kindly gives us some explanations, doesn't he? And here he gives some. In chapter 7, you remember he, he talked about the destruction of the nations. And here's what he gave. Because of this, you are my people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
It's because you're mine, my treasured possession. That's why. And in chapter 9, he adds to kind of the reasoning of their dispossession of the nations in the promised land with saying, verses 4 and 5, it's because of the wickedness of the nations. Two times he says that it's because of the wickedness of the nations. God is going before them as this consuming fire, which is a clear picture of judgment against sin, as he did with Nadab and Abihu and Korah. He's going before them like that. And this fire is is not just a judgment against sin, but it's also cleansing the sin that's in the promised land. And what kind of sin is in the promised land? This fire going before them is needed. Look at just a brief description of what they're going to face in the promised land from Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, starting in verse 20, he says, You shall not, he's going to list some sins here, and then he's going to say kind of at the end, as we'll see, like this is what's going on in the land. So verse 20, You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it's an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. This is just an example of some of the sins that are characterizing the nations that are in front of them in the promised land. These nations have provoked the Lord to wrath because of their great wickedness. Far from being some innocent nations, these are nations full of people that are in open rebellion against the Lord as seen in how they live their lives. And we like to come up with scenarios and say, how in the world could God destroy these innocent nations? And the reality is that there is no innocent nation. There is no innocent person that would dwell in any innocent nation. Every person in every nation, that means every nation, is sinful and wicked and deserving, rightly, of God's righteous judgment and wrath. These nations I just gave, here's what characterizes them. Clearly, they have fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving. They have earned, for their rebellion against God, they have earned His wrath and judgment. They have earned Him coming to them as a consuming fire. He is a holy God. As Israel clearly knew from Leviticus, he kept repeating, I'm holy, so you should be holy. They know that he's holy, and he is righteously angry with sin. And so while it may not be comfortable to talk about God's wrath, we need to recognize that God isn't just losing his temper. This consuming fire isn't out of control. It's always directed at sin. And it's consistent with who he is, a holy God. Can I add also that this God is a consuming fire and his wrath is also good? One theologian says it simply, God cannot love goodness without hating evil. We read, we did Saturday in the Psalms with the men yesterday morning, and we read Psalm 5, and and we need to be thankful. That's That's a good thing that God doesn't You know, he can't live with evil. Like, God cannot love goodness without hating evil. And we should be thankful that God hates evil. In Psalm 5, it says, this is a God who doesn't delight in wickedness. That's something to praise God about. He doesn't delight in wickedness. God cannot love goodness without hating evil. So you may not like God's righteous standard, but you need to know that it's perfect. 
It's holy. It's righteous. And that God is righteously angry with sin. He is consistent in opposing evil. Again, the fire is not out of control. It's directed at one thing, sin. And if God is seeking the good of Israel then, then it's good for him to be righteously angry with the wicked nations in the promised land. And God's wrath is always righteous, as is his love. There's no hint of his wrath being impure or out of control. This is not a God who's ever shifting in his temperaments. He wields even his wrath for good. And we can't think rightly about the goodness of God and the love of God without thinking rightly about the wrath of God. If we don't speak honestly about the wrath of God towards sin, then we're not going to speak honestly about the love of God towards sinners. Because God cannot love goodness without hating evil. Maybe I'm becoming an old man, but I don't like it when people speed down the street. <laughs> I haven't yelled at anybody yet, but like internally I'm like, what are you doing? You know why I hate that? Because that's the street my kids ride their bike on. Right? And I couldn't be for someone speeding down a residential street, which could cause all sorts of damage, and be for my kids. They don't go together. And so I think maybe I'm righteously angry at those who are speeding down the street. The place where God wants his people to live in relationship with him, where he has made for them to worship him, to be a light to the nations, the place where he wants them to do and keep the law, that the place where he wants them to love him with their heart, soul, and strength, where he wants them to love their neighbors as they love themselves, the place where he wants them to thrive in holiness is in the promised land, and it's full of wickedness. And so he can't love them well and not be righteously angry at the wickedness in the promised land. It's a place that needs to be purified. And so the God who loves Israel goes before them as this consuming fire, which works against one of the main threats to Israel. One of the main threats that he warns about over and over again is that you need to be careful that you don't become like one of them. Idolaters, sexually immoral, offering your children up to unknown gods that aren't actually real gods. And so he takes out one of the threats, in a sense, by being this consuming fire, but also doesn't that serve as a warning? How vivid of a warning to Israel would this be? That the destruction of the nations is a judgment against sin, but it also warns them. Like, this is what God does. This is how he visits sin, is right here, seen in front of us. And so God's destruction of the nations as this consuming fire who goes before is good and loving. Yes, God's wrath may cause some cringing, but we need to recognize it rightly as righteous and good. It doesn't mean we understand it fully, but we submit to him as God. And we say, you are holy, and all that you do is right. And who are we to say back to God, why are you doing this, or what have you done? He's the righteous one, not us. God wants Israel to know that he goes before them as a consuming fire because of the nation's wickedness. 
But what this doesn't do is somehow then give Israel the moral high ground. You shouldn't then push into their hearts this sense of spiritual um, superiority. God's people, who were probably way different back then, had the potential to hear of the nation's wickedness and think, maybe it's our righteousness. We're better than them. And so because they were so different back then, Moses has to warn them, verse 4, don't say when you get there, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. He says it again in verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Are you getting this? So instead of thinking it's because of their righteousness, God wants them to know, hey, guess what? Here's what you're like. You're stubborn. You need to know the nation's wickedness. Uh, You also need to know in light of that, of your own stubbornness. Verse 6, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. There it is again. For you are a stubborn people. Okay, third time, three times he lets them know, not because of your righteousness, not because of your righteousness, not because of your righteousness, and let's throw in, not because of your uprightness of heart. I guess a clear picture here. He was pounding it down into their hearts. Like the, the conquest, the dispossession of the nations in front of them in the promised land could easily give Israel a sense of moral superiority. Maybe for, perhaps they've arrived. It could fill them with spiritual pride. Look at the wickedness of these nations. At least we're not like men like them. But God is clear. And he warns clearly that the conquest of the promised land is not a matter of the nations being wicked and Israel being completely different and righteous. The conquest of the promised land is a matter of the Lord's judgment on the nations and faithfulness to his promises to the people of Israel. Think again of how that should warn these people. That God, this is this God who is a consuming fire and he destroys the nations in front of us because of their wickedness. And then he turns and tells us, you're stubborn. You're rebellious. What a warning. Like, maybe that's what we deserve. They they aren't any better. And the only reason that God is not consuming them is because he loves them. He's chosen them. They're his treasured possession. And why does he love them? Because he loves them, he says. So what are his people to be about? They're to be about a people that are doing and keeping. That should be the direction of their lives because they're seeing the consuming fire go out. And it's warning them, we need to do and keep the law because we deserve that same thing. But if the past is the only evidence we have to work on, then there couldn't be any confidence that that's the direction they're going to go. Verse 7, Moses reminds them of this. He says, remember, and often when you hear that word remember, when he's talking about the people of Israel, it's like, we're not going back to good memories. Remember, might be a dreaded word. Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Now, we're getting ready to go into this longer description of Israel. While the nation's got a brief description of what they're like, Israel's going to get a longer one. They get this extended description of their own rebellion and stubbornness. In other words, he's not just calling them rebellious. He's going to give them a long historical list of evidence. And verse 7 here isn't too different than Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. If you don't know that verse, 
It says that God saw that on the earth the people were always wicked all the time, continually. That was what was in their hearts. And in Genesis chapter 6, you know what's coming there. If you read Genesis 6, that's, that's where the flood is getting ready to happen. God's going to pour out his judgment on the entire earth because their hearts are evil continually. And verse 7, as a description of Israel, is very similar to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. They have been a people who have been consistently rebellious against God. This is the God who redeemed them, who sought them out and brought them out of Egypt, who sustained them in the wilderness, who gave them manna, who kept their feet from wearing out and getting sores on them, who had given them water in the midst of dry ground. This is the God that they are rebelling against. And from the day they came out of Egypt, they've rebelled. Though God has consistently been there for them, met them, sustained them. And all the description that we're going to get here in chapter 9 and 10 of all the rebellion of Israel, this is not exaggerated language. Moses isn't coming up with that one illustration. We do that, don't we? Like, you always do that. Like, when? Well, that one time. (laughs) Moses isn't saying, you're rebellious. I'm like, when? Like, well, actually all the time. No exaggeration here. All the time. Israel consistently displayed their lack of righteousness. They repeatedly rebelled against God, and he says it started at Horeb. In verse 8, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. This would have been the area of Sinai. God had just brought them out of Egypt. They had victory songs on their lips. Their their feet weren't even muddy after they'd crossed the sea. And he says, you rebelled. Right there is when it started. And not only did they rebel there, they came to the very brink of destruction by God who had just delivered them. Listen to what he says in verse 9. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither ate nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, when you have brought from, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them, and they have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them, and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. And God had just promised to, I'm going to blot out the names of the nations that are in the promised land now. And he says that that same thing is, is what Israel is under threat for here. They quickly had turned aside. And notice even the way God starts to talk about them. Like, leave me alone that I may destroy this people. Now this people that you've brought up from Egypt, Moses, is almost like he's distancing himself from them because they've been so stubborn and wicked. God had just brought them out, and he is making covenant with them. A holy God is binding relationship, a loving relationship with a sinful people. And while he's binding that relationship, while he's laying down the stipulations for how a sinful people can live with a holy God, a gracious thing, they're breaking the covenant already. 
God unmistakably gave this clear communication to them, right? The the fire and cloud descend upon this mountain. They know this is God speaking here. And while Moses is getting the ten words that he's going to get on these two tablets, as he's receiving these ten words, the first few of those words are already being broken. I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourselves any images or any idols of any form. They're already being broken in the camp below. And while Moses can't see it yet, while he can't hear the noises yet, God does. He says, I've seen what's in their hearts. They're rebellious. They're they're stubborn. And so what does he give to Moses? A flood-like proposal, right? Let's get rid of them and I'll start over with you. But verse 15, So I turned and I came down from the mountain... And the mountain was burning with fire. So God was, again, unmistakably communicating to his people. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, and you had sinned against the Lord your God. And you made for yourselves a golden calf. And you had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And so I took the hold of the two tablets, and I threw them out of my hands, and I broke them before your eyes. What a vivid display of the covenant that was been broken devastatingly by the Israelites in the camp. Written on these tablets were the ten words, and as he's receiving them, they're being broken. One commentator says that they give bovine evidence of their propensity to sin. They know that no calf led them through the sea. They were there They saw how the sea parted, how they were being led by a pillar and a cloud. They know that no calf led them across and brought them out of Egypt. And yet, in their propensity to sin, they quickly, it says, turned and said, hey, how about we make an idol? And just as Israel quickly turned from God, so the tablets and then were quickly broken from Moses. After God himself had written on them, he comes down and they're broken. And they're a picture of what they had already done. They had broken God's gracious covenants. And here's what Moses does in reply. Verse 18, Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Notice that God had freely moved to redeem them from Egypt. He heard their cries and he moved toward them. He freely and lovingly brought them through the Red Sea, sustained them in the wilderness, gave them and bound with them them this covenant. And he loved them because he loved them, he says. But now, here's what's happening. There's no provoking for any of that love, no provoking for any of that redemption. It was only an outpouring of who God is. Now he's provoked. And he's provoked to anger. Verse 19 Continues, and Moses says, I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me this time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and I burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust into the brook that ran down from the mountain. 
Perhaps Aaron is this dramatic display of the condition of Israel's hearts. He is perhaps a dramatic display of their rebellion. As the leader and priest of Israel, here he is leading the charge in their rebellion and stubbornness. You remember what they did, right? They they said, hey, we, we want to worship something. So he's like, all right, give me this gold and we'll throw it into the fire. Do you remember the excuse that he gave to Moses when he came and he asked for a reason for what is going on here? And you know what Aaron said? Well, I just kind of threw it in there and out came this calf. Man, like that's a kid excuse. It's, it's a kid excuse. How many times, I don't know, has done so many things in my house, right? Like, how did that happen? I don't know. Just, just did. That's exactly what Moses is. Like, oh, out came this calf. I don't know what happened down here. Moses is a weird thing. They're on the brink of destruction, and, and Aaron, the leader, the priest, is saying, well, it just came out. Their rebellion nearly led to their demise, and the description is only of a narrow escape from judgment. So surely now, all right, he ground that thing into dust, he poured it in the water, it's flowing out down the mountain. Surely now, now the people are going to be done with their rebellion, and it's going to flow away from them as the, this golden calf is slung away. No, not even close, right? We know the story. Verse 22, he continues, at Tabera also, all right, Tabera, uh, this would have been in, in Numbers chapter 11. If you want to flip over into Numbers chapter 11, you'll, you'll see this in verses 1 through 3. They're complaining. And it says, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Right? We, we could stop right there. Their misfortunes as people have been redeemed and supplied, led in relationship with God. And they're complaining because of their misfortune. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Again, they know God is a consuming fire. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and fire died down. And so the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. Or in verse 22 again, not just Taborah, what about Massa? We've already read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was the place where they're in the middle of the desert, there's no water, and they're complaining. They think that God had brought them out there to die, which is interesting, because God had brought them out of Egypt, let them cross the sea, supplied for them. They even have fresh manna probably in their bellies as they're saying, uh, where's the water? We're going to die here. They're putting the Lord to the test. No water. And God supplies. Or again, verse 22, at Kibroth, Hateva, you provoked the Lord to wrath. This too is in Numbers 11. This is the incident with, with their desire for meat and quail. Verse 18 says, Consecrate yourselves tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it is better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils, which sounds awful, and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Let's pick up the story in verse 31. The wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and it let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. I think that's three foot. Imagine that. And the people rose all that day and all night into the next day and gathered the quail. 
Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hateabah, because they were buried, there they buried the people who had the craving. Man, even more recent than that, the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. Verse 23, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. You rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. This was much more recent than all the others. It should be more vivid in their mind. They're at the doorstep of the promise and he says, go in possession. They're like, maybe we shouldn't. Verse 24 says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And again, this puts Moses prostrate before the Lord in flood-like description again for 40 more days because, verse 25 says, I lay prostrate before the Lord 40 days because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness, or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. This isn't the point of the text, but notice how Moses prays. He pleads for them, pleads on behalf of Israel with these repeated words. These are your people. He pleads based upon the reputation of God. Your name is on the line here, God. You brought these people out. Don't let other nations say something about your name and what you would do with your people. He pleads the reputation of God. And what does God do? He graciously relents. And even we go on to see that he's going to rewrite these tablets. Chapter 10, verse 1, At that time the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first, and I went up to the mountain with the two tablets in my hand, and he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me, and then I turned and came down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are. As the Lord commanded me, a testament to the mercy of God that he relented from his destruction. And the people of Israel, verse 6, journeyed from Beeroth, Benajacum, to Masorah. There Aaron died, and he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. And from there they journeyed to Gud Gadoda, and from that place to Jot Batha, a land with brooks of water. And at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God has said to him. Verse 10, I myself stayed on the mountains as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise. Go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers 
to give them. As they're on the edge of the promised land again, Moses is going to add some perspective to what they know of their history and evidence. He's going to add his own personal perspective, what he has seen and heard, his unique vantage point. And he adds that to the story from the Red Sea all the way up to where they are now. And he says, yes, this is a picture of stubborn rebellion that's just continually seen, that you are on the brink of destruction way closer than you even know multiple times. Wait, again, what, what kind of pregame speech is this, Moses? Like, what are you trying to do before they go into the promised land? Why are you doing this? Why are you spending time trying to show them? Or maybe even he's trying to convince them and persuade them that this is a rebellious nation that's just stubborn-hearted. I think because it leaves no other explanation for them, for the words, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you, or, or go on and go in and possess the land. It gives no other explanation for that other than God's mercy. They can't look up and say, we're more righteous than that nation. They have historical evidence that they are wicked and rebellious people. And each time they hear, as he commands them, go in and possess this land, they should know it's not because of what we have done. We haven't earned this. We haven't deserved it. It's not our merit. It's not because of our righteousness or or the way we look before God or our own holiness. It's only by his mercy. As the manna in the wilderness reminded them at every step in their journey that God is dependable, he's trustworthy, you can cast yourself upon him, he will always sustain those who depend upon him. So every step, this retelling reminds that every stage, God is merciful. And this should help them have confidence in their God who is merciful to their sinful nation. This should give them humility as they move forward into the land. Humility that would say, we know that the Lord God is God and we submit wholly to him. Amen. So in other words, Moses is telling them about their stubbornness and rebellion, not just so that they would know of their own stubbornness and rebellion, but so they would know of God's mercy. They need to know the one who goes before what he's like, what he's done, what he's promised. And what I find is that it's all too easy to come to a text like this and do what Israel was tempted to do and say, Israel's wickedness is different than ours. Surely we're more righteous than they are. If they did that, if we do that, then we miss God's mercy. And the New Testament spends all kinds of time, pours out a lot of ink on reminding, persuading, perhaps convincing people of their lack of righteousness, that they are the sick and need a doctor. The New Testament makes clear that while there are external problems, the nations are still raging that there's an internal problem, that no one is righteous, not even one, that all have fallen short. And our lives, like Israel's, bear historical evidence to that truth. We look back at the pages of our lives, and everywhere we turn, we're going to see evidence of our own rebellion and stubborn hearts against the Lord. And for this lack of righteousness before God, For our own rebellion and stubbornness, what we deserve is what these nations deserve, the consuming fire. And it would be good and right and holy 
Comparison with others that are seemingly more wicked will never justify us. Somehow, boasting of our own merits and the good things we have done will not allow us to escape it. The only hope is God's mercy. We need to know not just our rebellion then, but God's mercy. We need to know God. And thankfully, we can know God. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of the mercy of God. Verse 4, after telling us that we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, that we all need to be convinced that we are deserving of God's judgment and wrath, the consuming fire poured out on us, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Because we have been shown to be dead and he has been shown to be rich in mercy. He is showing the evidence, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So that no one may boasts. It's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. God reminds us of his mercy that doesn't meet us in our loveliness, that doesn't meet us in our own merit of good works, meets us when we are dead, meets us when we merited the opposite of mercy, judgment. And that's where Jesus comes and he meets us, not because we were lovely, not because we were mighty, not because we were numerous, but because God is rich in mercy. We're to cast ourselves upon that mercy because this is mercy that will not only just come and meet us in the midst of our deadness, rebellion, and sin, but would give us the righteousness that we too lacked like Israel. The righteousness that we all need doesn't come from within. We we say that that righteousness that we need is alien, outside of us. It comes from Jesus. But by God's mercy, that righteousness is ours. So if we're to move forward rightly, as God's people were to move forward rightly here in Deuteronomy, we're going to need to know the God who goes before us. And he went before us, not only in his leading through the wilderness and into the promised land, he's the one who goes before us here today as one who went before us down into death and out the other side. And all who trust in him can have confidence that he led the way, that we too will go down in death and come out the other side. So that now we can look and know that every stage of our lives, we can look back and know God has been merciful, and we can move forward and know that God will be merciful, and that that same God is with us. That's how we live life as the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How can you be so good to people who are so wicked? 
that is who you are, and that is who you will always be. And you are, you're also a God who loves goodness and hates wickedness, and you burn it up like a consuming fire, God, and we rejoice in you today, and we call your name hallowed. We praise you because we know that we deserve your wrath. We deserve to be consumed by your fire, and yet we are not because we are safe in Christ, in your Son. Jesus, thank you for coming down to earth and putting on human flesh to be our representative, to be our high priest who can relate to us, who can understand human weakness and yet obeying perfectly the law. You obeyed all the commands of your Father in our place because we could not, and you bore your Father's wrath on the cross in our place, and you rose from the dead, and we are going to also, and we have a promised land coming, and we don't deserve to be in it, but we are safe in you, and we are promised pleasures evermore, and we will look you in the face and live on a new earth and reign with you forever, not because we are good, but because we trust you because we believe that you will keep your word. Jesus, you are so good. We praise you today. God, if there's anyone between these walls who does not know you and love you as their Lord and King, will you open up their heart and draw them to yourself? By the power of your Holy Spirit, you are good, and we can be spared your wrath and your judgment, God. So draw all men and women in this place to yourself today. God, we want you to continue to do that for your namesake all over this planet. It's not too big a task for you. You're not afraid of giants. You're not afraid of a city with 27 million people in it where only 1% of them belong to you. That's not insurmountable. And so, God, I pray that we would trust you and that we would ask for big things and attempt great things for your name because everyone needs to know a God who is this good. You created us for worship and we want to live our lives directed to that end so that everyone around us, everyone we have any chance to contact can become a worshiper of you, God. So we pray that you would bless our ministries, that your good news would be on our tongues. We pray for our friends from India and their small church there, God, that you would let the gospel go forth and that you would create new church after new church after new church after new church to reach people there, God. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking our dead hearts and making them alive. Continue to do that work, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.